I'm Sarah Zanbergen, and I'm the ambassador for Stance. And this is the Take Back Talk Back podcast. Our mission for this podcast is to open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations, just like this one. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Jackie Porter. Jackie is an award-winning certified financial planner with 22 years of experience in the financial industry. Jackie is a speaker, an author, and my favorite, Canada's financial confidant. Please join me in welcoming Jackie Porter. Welcome, Jackie. Very happy to be here today. I'm so excited. So... We talked about this a bit in our live that we did, and anybody that missed our live can catch it on uh, IGTV, but I really enjoyed what you said for our listeners. Um, so on the podcast, let's do some myth busting. Do you have to be wealthy to invest? You know, that's probably one of the biggest myths. Of course, you don't have to be wealthy to invest. People become wealthy by investing, right? And I, and I think that that's a really important myth to overcome because Truly, at the end of the day, how people become wealthy is they make a decision that they're going to do something that they didn't do before. You kind of have to, when you decide you want to lose a few extra pounds, what you did before isn't going to change your weight. You know what I mean? If you want to change the number on the scale, if you want to change the number in your bank account or your net worth, you have to make different decisions. And one of the decisions that people who want to lose weight have to do, along with people who want to become wealthy, and this is a money truth we need to address, is they need to become disciplined. Disciplined savers, which means putting away money, even when it's challenging. And then the other part of it is being disciplined investors, which means staying invested, even when there's great uncertainty, when you feel scared, understanding that there's a big picture ahead, which is people who are patient and wait for their money to multiply, become wealthy. Because wealth truth truly is defined as, to me, where you actually have capital, money to rely on. When, when you actually have an emergency and you can't work, there's money there. Or a longer period of time, like, you know, you're retired, so you can rely on the money that is has been invested to work for you. Money at work is really what it's about when it become, when you're talking about being wealthy. And the average millionaire actually talks about how many years they actually have cash that they don't have to work for. And that's how you want to start thinking about money is how many years can my money work for me without me having to work? That's the true definition of wealth. Wealth is freedom. Absolutely. It's not about flash. It's not about, you know, having the no. most. Yeah, I really like that security no, fact, and freedom. Let me, let me miss bust a little bit more because I've yes, been please. into those homes when I've been into those homes where, you know, I remember when I just started in the industry and I got my first call, uh, you know, for a house out in a really fancy neighborhood. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be such an awesome client. I can't wait to see, you know, what I can uncover there. And what I did uncover when I looked under the hood was a lot of debt. So people who sometimes look like they have money, please don't confuse those people with people who actually have money. Um, because typically it's the millionaire next door, the people who don't look necessarily like they have money. Guess what? Strangely enough, they do, probably because they're not spending every penny that they earn. 
That's not all going out the door. So yeah, that was one of the biggest myths I found out in the financial industry. Don't trust what you see. And that's actually true now that we're living in this social media time where we see people, not so much these days during COVID, where they're on the vacation and they're getting the nice car and they're getting all these fancy spa treatments. Just cha-ching, cha-ching, it's adding up on their credit card and not necessarily paid for today because they don't necessarily have the cash. So I have a term for this, Sarah. It's called the broke millionaire which is the person who looks like they're wealthy, but they don't actually have any wealth to actually speak of. That's really interesting. And I think it's really a kind of a, a signpost to say- that person. Yeah, yeah. You know, what? what is important to me? And, and Kim and I have had this conversation as well and, um, in, in season one. It's not necessarily, like I said before, about the flash, about what you have. And it's, you know, that, that invisible wealth. It's um, that, that, that's, those are the things that are important for sure. Yeah, it's that mindset wealth where you have money and you, you're you actually getting that opportunity to think, at some point I can slow down. And I have that freedom of peace of mind to think, God forbid something happens. I have cash. I don't have to go into debt to do X, Y, or Z in the future. Exactly. Security. Security is wealth, for sure. So when you are looking to become wealthy and you want to start investing. Um, we've we've talked before, you and I, and we've likened um, this whole situation to dating. So, you know, we talk about dating red flags. Are there advisor red flags that you should be on the lookout for? Oh my goodness. This is a really juicy topic, Sarah. I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about this because I think there's a lot of women in particular out there who either have no idea how to approach these advisor relationships or they don't know how to break up with a really not so great advisor. Um, And so here are some ways to know, first and foremost, when you're searching for an advisor, if you're working with somebody that you should feel comfortable with. One, your gut. Your gut is actually a really good sign. If you sit down with somebody and your gut saying, get out of here and hurry up. (laughs) That's probably a bad sign. If you feel like you can't tell that person your money truths, they're not somebody you feel comfortable talking about because money is such an emotional subject for people, right? It's, it's, it carries so much weight in so many different ways. It's your childhood. It's what you saw. It's your fears. It's your hopes. So if you're sitting with somebody, you don't feel like you can have a real honest money conversation with, that's a huge red flag. It's kind of like that guy. And I think you and I, Sarah, talked about it. That person, that date that you can't talk about money to, Red flag, run. Don't walk away from that scenario. Because if you can't talk about money today, you won't be able to talk about money tomorrow. <laughs> so, so that's the first thing. If you don't feel comfortable, run. The second thing is, does that person have a website? Can you find them easily? Can you search their name? And they belong to you know associations. They're, they belong to um, a member body because we're highly regulated Uh, really a highly regulated industry. So if you can't find that person on the Canadian Securities Commission website or the MFDA, Mutual Fund Dealers Association, you can't search this person. Who are they? So, you know, that's the second thing. Can you find them? Can you locate them? Do they have a website? Do they have credentials? Um, And ask them, what do their credentials mean? How do those credentials add value and help speak to your specific circumstances? You know, if they can't tell you how they add value, then again, that's another red flag. How can I, how do I help? How do I, how can I help you? And how have I helped my clients 
Um, another thing I'm passionate is, about is if they're dealing with your investments, do they have an opinion, right? What's their philosophy around investing? How do they invest their clients' money? My personal philosophy is I'm all about sleep at night. My clients, some of them are very um, savvy investors, but they also want to have a piece of their portfolio that they don't have to worry about. They're not managing, they're busy. So, you know, I worry about their sleep at night. I want to make sure they, they know, because I have a lot of clients who are retirees, that they will have that money in the future. So I'm really, you know, careful about risk-adjusted returns for my clients and I show them. And if uh, this is the other thing, if they can't show you third-party information as to why they make the recommendations that they do, that's another, you know, huge red flag to look at. And then finally, how do they get paid? <laughs> this is something that they should be telling you well ahead of time. Like, how do I pay? How do I pay you? Like, because clients need to know this. If I'm talking to you about money and how I can help, I should be able to say, you know, I get paid, you know, and how I work is I'm, pay, I'm paid on a sliding scale. So depending on the size of your assets, you know, I am earning on assets 0.75 to 1.25% rate of return. And I show returns to clients net of fees. And we go through why I recommend them versus an index fund. So these are clients, these are conversations. I have very comfortable conversations with the clients because I want to make sure they understand my value, especially because I'm their sleep at night. And this should be a conversation you expect from any advisor you're looking to work with or you're currently working with. They should be giving you a statement each year that says, here's my return net of fees. Am I on track for my retirement based on this? You should be able to have those conversations and feel comfortable asking these questions. And if, again, if you're working with somebody already that you don't feel comfortable with in any of those areas, you have the right to break up with your advisor because it's your money. And at the end of the day, it's going to be your impact. If you've made a wrong choice, it's going to impact only you, not the person that you're sitting in front of. So don't feel like you can't break up with your advisor if it's not working. And how would you suggest having that conversation if it comes to that? If you need to break up with your financial advisor, how do you broach the subject? Because I feel like that's something that um, I wouldn't <laughs> even know where to begin. It's, and I know it's a tough one. Yeah. And I've had family members in the past who I remember having this conversation with them where they said, well, this is where our money is. We don't like what this person is doing, but we can't leave. And I was younger at the point, so I just didn't think anything about it. But now that I'm thinking back, I'm like, wait, why couldn't you leave? I think you should start off by asking them those questions. Like, how do you add value? How am I, what am I paying for this service? How are my investments tracking with the markets and with my retirement portfolio? Because then you can kind of see where you're at and determine how much value they're adding. And if at the, if you go down that road and you decide that that person isn't adding any value, then you can say, you know what, you can contact them and say, listen, I, I really appreciate, because it's kind of like any breakup, right? Like I appreciate all that we've done so far because you want to leave any situation with positive vibes because you never know what the future holds. So, you know, just say, I really appreciate everything we've done to date, but I want to go in a different direction. And I just want you to know, I want you to be the first to know that I am moving on. Thanks again for everything that's happened so far. Wish you be the best and, you know, move forward. That's all you owe is a respectful goodbye. Definitely. And when it comes to your money, absolutely. There is, there really is. And that's why it's so important to, as we're saying, you know, date around until you find the one. So once you've found the one, yeah, look around. <laughs> um, 
So I feel like the the number one rule of investing is diversification. So tell us, what does a diversified portfolio really look like? You know, I think there's so many, first of all, start off and understand there's five asset classes, right? There's cash, there's commodities, there's stocks, there's bonds, there's real estate. So people need to know what these broad categories look like and then determine, you know, your, I'd I'd say determine the, you know, what you understand. So like a big part of what I do is really educating people, right? So here are the different types of investments that we have to choose from, but then we, we go to the universe of what we have to choose from. Then I tell them about what I have specifically have access to. And then there's also beyond that, right? There are other things that they might want to do. So um, in my practice, I focus on, as I said, sleep at night money. So that tends to be, you know, um, blue chip, dividend paying stocks that people don't tend to have to worry about, you know, um, alternative asset classes where they have access to things like real estate, infrastructure, private pools, so stuff like that. But beyond that, so it's putting together a portfolio based on their risk tolerance, based on the universe. So it's very fair going back to questions to ask your advisor, you know, what types of assets would I have access to? And in my in my role of doing that is picking things that don't look the same, because really diversification is if all of a sudden I have all of my eggs in one basket, then they're all going to break and then I'm going to starve. Right. It's very similar in investments. If all of a sudden I have all of my money in that one asset class, commodities and the markets fall in commodities, then I my goose is cooked. Right. I only I have a much bigger loss and a, a bigger loss to recover from, which is always going to be more impactful to a portfolio. Losses impact a portfolio more, especially the larger the loss, it's going to take that much longer to recover. So the more you can diversify amongst those asset classes, the better. But understand, you know, um, exactly what your risk looks like to pick, you know, what are different types of assets I can. And, and this is, again, a question to ask the advisor. What are the different types of assets based on my risk tolerance that I would have access to? And, and I think diversifying is, is really a, that crucial thing that you can do where you're constantly looking at your portfolio to ensure that as time goes on, it's still diversified. Because the, the truth is, as the market grows, sometimes what can happen is stocks start to look the same. Like right now, for example, um, in 2020, the large growth we saw in the markets, do people know where the large growth came from? was from technology and healthcare. (laughs) And so um, that, if you even owned an index fund, the the majority of the growth you had came from that area. It made up. And so what's happening is because these technology companies are becoming bigger and bigger, they're actually meaning that if you're buying specific types of ETFs, it's like you're just buying that market. So if you own an ETF and they all look the same, you could be buying the same you're because of the the amount of volume those tech companies trade on the stock market you could buy you know the TSC the TSX and you know that because of the amount of volume of shares Shopify owned you're like buying Shopify like five times you know what i mean so you you have to be careful when you're looking at diversification to truly look under the hood and see exactly what you're owning to make sure that you don't own the same types of things and having those conversations with your advisor is key 
that's such good advice. That really, that really is. Um, and I think that a lot of the times, you know, there's really an attractive quality to a kind of a set it and forget it mindset, but that's really not the way you should be looking at your investing that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's your savings account, but no, that's no. not your investing. Let's talk ethical investing. I've noticed that this has become a lot more prevalent in recent years, and a lot of investors are saying that this is important to them. How do you feel that you should be going about investing ethically? It's so interesting, this whole ethical conversation, because you're right, we've kind of gotten to this inflection point. And for the audience members that don't know what, what ethical stands for, it's ESG funds, which are environmental, social, and governmental. And I think you know, in 2020, we kind of reached this inflection point when it came to um, talking about ethical investing and, you know, why it matters. Um, The research has shown that ethical funds tend to do better over the long term than typical investments. The ethical investors will tell you there's a reason for it is because things are being done um, not just from a greed factor, but looking there's, there's risk associated with not having ethical investments. And I'll give you some examples. Um, for example, on the social piece, um, there's, if you are you know, investing in corporations, the social piece could be having board members of those corporations be women. Because you know, if you only have men um, or not diversity on boards, you're going to potentially have blind spots and and decisions are being made with billions, millions of dollars with these blind spots. And so uh, what the research has found is more diverse boards actually produce better results for their investors, for their shareholders. And so these are some of the issues that kind of came to the fore in 2020 when we, you know, were looking at major climate changes. We were looking at social issues like the death of George Floyd and policing and the call for more diversification. So I've actually seen so many more um, uh, corporations take a much more um, stronger stance when it comes to ethical investing on looking at ways they can screen their boards to have more women, to have more diversity, uh, because at the end of the day, it's good for the it's good for the company and it's great for investors. And, you know, in terms of environmental, you know, again, we're at an inflection point with um, environmental issues. And we know that, for example, we don't have a um, unlimited supply of energy. So looking at alternative energy as another way to invest ethically. And, you know, what's happened in in 2020, many institutional investors started to realize this is something we have to really pay attention to. We we don't have an unlimited supply of, of oil and oil isn't necessarily great for the environment. So what can we do? So there's real money going into these areas now more than ever before. So it's definitely something investors should look at carefully. So I would probably start if I'm a new investor to ethical funds. What do you care about? What are the things that you're truly passionate about when it comes to ethical investing? And follow that. So if it's looking at companies that are doing, you know, good in 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 terms of society and 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 putting more board members, you know, you can ask your advisor, you can research what are those companies that are doing that. If it's around, you know, ESG on the um, 
on the on the energy side, there's some great alternative energy um, stories that are coming out of of investments. So you know, where can I invest my money if I want to look at you know wind and um, electric? I mean, we know that companies like Ford, the the U.S. right now is going through a major environmental restructuring and looking at helping um, their American companies that they want to see do well um, get in the game, looking at ways they can get into electric vehicles like Ford, for example, and the government supporting them. So there's a lot of actually amazing things happening in the uh, ESG space. Start by what you care about, what you're passionate about, uh, researching that speaking to your advisor about opportunities, and then really go from there. That's fantastic. And it really feels like the ethical investing, it's just going to be more sustainable in the end. It is. I mean, at, at the end of the day, don't we want uh, companies to do good and do well? That's, that's to me, as you said, it's a much more sustainable way to manage investments. In fact, I was reading just the other day, um, They, I can't remember the name of the the um, individual who wrote the article, but I was fascinated because he was talking about a corp. What's your what's your CEO's burn rate? And what he meant by that is how fast is that CEO burning through your money and not creating a profit while doing so? It was fascinating. It was so fascinating because he was looking at you know a ten year track record of a CEO who lost billions of dollars, billions of dollars for the company. Yes, they made some good moves, but what if we had somebody at the helm that actually was thinking much more sustainably? You know what I mean? We're actually doing what we do as as investors and consumers, which is managing our money well, making those sound investment decisions, really thinking about each and every decision and how it's going to impact their shareholders rather than chasing one thing or chasing the other, burning through the money and chasing, you know, a return that way. But is that a more sustainable? And I, I actually think that that thought leadership is going to influence the way companies, you know, approach, CEOs approach, you know, managing managing a company moving forward. Because there was always this sense that, you know, once you become an IPO, people seem to stop caring about how money is spent, right? And, and that can't be if we're looking for sustainable growth moving forward. And I just thought that was, that was a really powerful article. That's incredibly fascinating. I think so too. And I think that this goes back to interviewing your financial advisor, your financial planner. If you can't have these conversations with them, and if you open it up, you'll see how they react to, hey, you know, I want to start investing ethically and sustainably. And what can you recommend? If you're not getting the answers back that you're looking for, that might be another sign. Yeah, that gut check again, right? Because, you know, ultimately that person is supposed to be there to educate you, to help you feel more confident about the decisions you're making. So, you know, what you don't want is a one-way conversation where they just say, um, you know, give you a one-word answer. But I, I like to provide, and I know that the advisors that I know like to provide resources so you can read about it, learn a little bit more. So if we're having a conversation, you feel a little bit more knowledgeable on the subject. So whatever we're looking at, you know, ask them for resources so that you can kind of learn more as you're going through, you know, making decisions about how you may want to ethically invest. All right. The age old debate, RSP versus TFSA. So what should we be investing in first between those two? And what is important to keep in mind from a tax perspective when you're doing that investing? 
RSPs and TFSAs, you're right, it is an age-old debate. And I, I'm asked that constantly. And I think the things, the criteria to think about is what's your income bracket? If you're somebody who earns a really good income and pays a lot of tax, chances are you would probably benefit from putting money in an RSP because you get money back for every dollar you put in an RSP. And if we can, you know, double dip with cash so we can make money on our money without even actually investing it yet. I love that concept. So if if I'm in a higher tax bracket, so, you know, let's say, you know, I'm making $80,000 a year. Um, I'm in a, a fairly high tax bracket. Every dollar I put into an RSP, you know, I'm going to be in a position where I'm going to get, you know, over 30% back in a refund. So being able to do that means I can now have money in my RSP. I can get a a refund and then I can take that refund, potentially use it to put into my TFSA or pay off debt. But that, that really only works well if I'm in a high tax bracket. So let's say I'm in a lower tax bracket and financially I'm a little bit more cash strapped. But I want to put money away, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe my job isn't secure or, you know, I'm in a scenario where I'm not earning that much. I'm just coming out of student debt. A TFSA might be a better option. And I'll tell you why. Because you've got that flexibility where if you needed to take the money out, you could take it out and pay no taxes on it. Um, That's the big caveat with an RSP. You can only take out money in an RSP under a specific program like the Lifelong Learning Program, or if you want to take money out to buy a house. Otherwise, if you take money out of the RSP, that same tax credit or refund I was telling you, you got the government closet back from you. So it makes it less attractive if you're not um, you know, income secure or you're in a lower tax bracket where you didn't even get that much of a refund to begin with. And then you know, you're having to withdraw it. So if you're someone who earns a lower income, a TFSA would be a better option because, you know, you're and you might be in a scenario where you can leave your RSP room for later when you, you're earning more. But then you can put the money away. You can have the money grow tax free. That's the big benefit of a TFSA. You're you put money away. You don't get a tax refund for every dollar you put into a TFSA, but the money grows tax free. So that's really a beautiful quality, because if you leave that money in there over a long period of time and you take it out, you never pay taxes on it. So the money goes in the investment tax free and you can withdraw it tax and penalty free. So these are two beautiful things about a TFSA. One of the things I'm going to say about a TFSA, because I I feel like the way that it's been marketed hasn't been great. TFSA should be considered an investment account, not a savings account. The majority of what you're saving in a TFSA, you want to leave it to grow and never pay taxes on it. Who cares if you make a few bucks in a a savings account? What you really want is that money to grow, compound and grow over time. So if you put, you know, 10,000 in there, you have $100,000 years years later, and you can pull out that 100,000 and never pay a cent of taxes. That's not the case with an RSP, but you would have had, just like the TFSA, you'd have had all those years where the money grew tax deferred. But then when you start taking money out, you're paying taxes at a time when you should be in a lower tax bracket. So consider carefully, both are great investment vehicles. You just have to understand your finances because sometimes people get really mad when they put money in the wrong 
investment and then they pay tax like for an RSP. And it's really because they didn't understand really the benefits and the, and the actual um, drawbacks of using either vehicle. So think think carefully about your how you're using it. Consider your cash flow. Consider when you'll need it. But the idea about both structures is you want to grow money and not pay taxes while it grows. That's the crucial piece. And this is such a great example of why it's important to have financial conversations, to ask these questions, because I think a lot of times, and I mean, I've heard it over and over and over, people are always really excited to tell us what we should be doing with our money. And what they're missing is a big piece of the puzzle, which is what my future plans are. If you don't know, you know, unless you're my partner or my financial advisor, you don't know what I'm doing, you know, five, 10, 20 years from now. So, you know, that that's that big piece is knowing, okay, what does my future hold? And and then deciding which investment vehicle is right for me. So I thank you. That that's such a great, great advice. Yeah, absolutely. And and the truth is your future could change, right? So you might start with one plan and then, you know, whatever, whatever reason things change, and then you adjust accordingly. So, you know, I had a client who we were maxing out her RSP for many years. And then she decided um, she wanted to, you know, go into semi-retirement. And so once we got into semi-retirement, we started to max out her TFSA instead. Money that we were initially putting into the RSP, we started putting into the TFSA because she was earning less. Uh, But she still was in a way a really good position. She had paid off her mortgage at that point. And she, you know, could pretty much save most of what she was investing, of what she was saving, what she was earning. And... That brings me to um, my final question for you. You are Canada's financial confidant, which we've, we've discussed before. I love that. I love that title so much because it brings a feeling of warmth and welcoming to a financial conversation that I feel is sorely missing. Do you feel like there's an opportunity for a change in the advisor space to make it more welcoming to people of all genders? I think so. I think um, first and foremost, the financial industry is not naive to the fact that women are going to inherit trillions of dollars over the next, you know, 30 years. And, you know, if there was ever a time (laughs) where your banker or, you know, the financial industry wanted to invite women into a conversation, it's right now. And I think, you know, end of the day, even though the motives aren't always the best, <laughs> I think it's really great that they realize that, um, you know, first and foremost, the financial industry for a really long time has been male dominated. It's only in the last 20, 30 years um, that we've seen an influx of women in the industry and still not enough, especially at, you know, high, high levels at the table. So at, you know, boardroom tables and women coming into the industry means we have a different way of looking at things. And and when I'm talking about women, I'm talking about the feminine energy that women often bring, um, which is we tend to invite people to conversations. And that's what being a financial confidant is about. It's about that invitation where I think prior to the last 30 years, the financial industry has not been good at inviting people to the conversation. I've talked to a number of women who said, you know, their advisor only talks to their husband when they're having financial conversation conversations and when um, they don't necessarily feel like they can ask questions without being made to feel stupid. Um, the language is not very inviting. It's very technical. Things aren't made 
made uh, to be explained in a way that the average layman can help, you know, understand what's going on. And all of those things are really ways that you close people off, right, from taking responsibility for their finances, from making them feel victimized, like feel helpless, like, oh, you know, throw my hands in the air. And I, I just I don't think I'll ever be able to get a handle on this. So none of those things really help a woman's confidence or anyone's confidence for that matter. And I think so I think a woman's superpower is that ability to empathize, to create that invitation, to create that non-judgmental space, to make the industry more user-friendly for everyone. So I, I think, you know, feminine energy on the whole is great, not just for women, it's great for everyone. <laughs> because the, the truth is, I talk to a lot of men who feel shame, who don't feel like they understand um, the financial industry because because it's something we never learned in school. It's never something we were taught. So to empower people to feel like, you know, they can actually understand finance. They can understand the possibilities associated with, you know, understanding money is powerful. And, you know, I'm really grateful um, that I get a chance to do that every day with my clients. I, I feel really privileged that they feel comfortable with me telling me their money truths. And I, and I love the direction that the industry is going. And I, and I think more and more people are embracing that. That's such a hopeful, hopeful feeling thing to to think about. I like that a lot. And I think it's it's very needed. Yeah. And like I said, I, th- I think a part of it is selfish. The financial <laughs> industry wants to benefit from the women who are inheriting. But at the same time, I think, you know, we have an opportunity to make a power move, which is, okay, you want our money? Earn it. Yes. Yes. Ooh, I love that. I love that so much. So on that note... Um, Jackie, I want to thank you so much for coming on season two of Take Back, Talk Back. And for our listeners, where can everyone find you out in cyberspace? (laughs) Well, you can go to my my, um, website, which is askjackie.ca. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it, Jackie. It was such a pleasure. I look forward to doing this again soon. Sarah, have a wonderful rest of the day. Something became clear to me during my chat with Jackie, and that is that the financial industry needs to attract women. Talking about money isn't difficult, but somewhere along the way, we've made it seem difficult. Let's see if we can put a stop to that. If the financial industry wants our wealth, let's make them earn it. If we're likening seeking a financial advisor to dating, it really starts the same way, with your values. Start by listing what's important to you and what your investing goals are, and then try to find someone who aligns with those. Remember that it's okay to quote unquote date more than one financial advisor before settling down, so to speak. A good first step is to ask yourself what your future looks like. What are you planning for? Once you have that sketched out, it's time to date. Do your research and ask around. Has a friend or colleague had a great experience with a certain financial advisor whose values match yours? Did you find someone online with some excellent client testimonials? Start there. I'm sure those of us who are dating probably Google our date beforehand. So do the same with your financial advisor. Are they on the Canadian Securities site? Do they themselves have a website? Are they transparent with how they are being paid for their services? When you do meet, do you feel comfortable talking them to them about your goals, your fears, and your current financial situation comfortably? If not, 
on to the next. I've noticed it's so common to blame ourselves when we're feeling uncomfortable asking questions or being open about money. Why is that? Personally, I'm going to apply Jackie's knowledge here and start pointing that outwards. Why do I feel uncomfortable talking to this particular individual? Is it really me or is it them? Not learning can be a vicious cycle. If you don't ask, you don't learn and ignoring a subject won't help you learn about it. And guess what? I'm willing to bet you aren't the first person who has ever asked the question and you definitely won't be the last. So just ask it. Thank you for listening to the Take Back Talk Back podcast, the podcast where we open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations, just like this one. You know what we don't talk about enough? The sneaky ways we lose money. Everyone is always so quick to blame coffee, and I have to say I'm sick of coffee getting such a bad reputation. I love coffee. I live on coffee. Please don't come for my coffee. There's something worse. Account fees. So many of us pay up to 20 bucks a month just to have our money in the bank. I have a word that could describe this, but I work for a bank, so maybe I'll just say it's poppycock. There is an alternative. EQ Bank doesn't charge monthly fees, transaction fees, Interact e-transfer fees. There's no minimum balance and you earn a high interest rate on every dollar. Skip the bank fees and have your coffee. Learn more at eqbank.ca. The Take Back Talk Back podcast is brought to you by EQ Bank, Money Well Banked. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Equitable Bank. Any information provided is for information purposes only, and Equitable Bank makes no representations as to the validity, accuracy, or completeness or suitability of any content. You should seek the advice of a qualified professional or undertake your own research before making financial decisions. This podcast is produced by the phenomenal team at Quill. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify.